there was one particular compound which was probably the most expensive compound in the kingdom. The owner was very prominent and he'd had some shitty US consultant. I came in and I wrote this report up for the client just basically said, this place is like a fucking teabag. It's got so many holes in it. I can't give it my blessing to say it's safe enough. Next thing I get is a letter from the personal office of this very prominent person who says, you are no longer welcome in the kingdom. So I literally, I think, no bullshit to this. Yeah. So I send a letter back with a copy of the report and an explanatory sort of addendum mm. to say, no, you should be sacking your security advisor because he hasn't done a good enough job. Mm. Uh, I get a letter back that says, thank you very much, Mr. Geddes. We've now reviewed this situation. We would welcome you back into the kingdom. I'm like, fuck that, I'm still okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary Event Crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. We've all seen heroic bodyguards on film and TV, but how close are they to reality? Will Geddes is the real deal. With 25 years as a security specialist, advising clients on a wide range of risks and threats, he leads a team of special forces, government and intelligence agency personnel. He's worked with high profile clients on close protection, extortions, blackmails and counter-terrorism, and he has some incredible stories to go with it. Will shares his everyday carries, his riskiest moments, and his thought processes in high-pressure situations. This one is fascinating. This is the eventful life of the real James Bond, Mr. Will Geddes. Will, welcome to the show, mate. Dodge, I feel very honoured. You've had some very prestigious guests, and uh, and to even be allowed to darken your doorstep is a privilege, sir. <laughs> very much looking forward to this one, Will. Let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up, and how did you become an international bodyguard? Well, where do we start? So I grew up in Kingston, uh, just outside London, and uh, I had a very interesting childhood. Uh, my mother and father separated and divorced when I was about seven mm. and uh, it was a it was not a great childhood it was pretty horrible to be absolutely fair and then I was packed off to uh, private school as you can tell by my lovely mm. accent um, <laughs> very posh to be honest to be honest that's probably the only benefit that I got from it because um, I certainly wasn't an academic yeah. uh, by any stretch but yeah no it was an interesting childhood I have uh, two siblings and uh, my mother was an alcoholic uh, my father was very authoritarian. So it was, uh, you know, it wasn't until much later in life when I actually spoke to someone about it and said, you know what, I, when I'm talking to friends about their memories of childhood, I don't have many. Mm. And why is that? And it's really weird. That yeah. Either I've got, you know, I'm just thick um, and I have a very poor memory or maybe there's something else. And I found out from a professional who said, when you've had a traumatic childhood, it's really not that surprising mm. if you can't remember an awful lot of it. Mm. And that would explain an, an, a great deal. Mm. Anyway, as time progressed, um, they subsequently passed away. Um, How old were you when they passed? Well, I, my father died when I was uh, 17, okay. uh, which was quite a pivotal point for me mm. in life um, because that's where my direction really sort of um, span 
and my wheels span and I didn't really know what to do. Um, and I and I was like that for a few years. But I was never one of these kids that sort of uh, from the age of year dot went, I want to be a doctor, mm. or I want to be a policeman, mm. I you know, I want to be an accountant. Um, you know, all my friends were going, yeah, I know what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to university. And I never went to university. Mm. I wasn't academic mm. at all. Um, I, for many, many years, I found out later that I was dyslexic. But for many, many years, I thought I was just lazy because that was what I was told because I wasn't engaged yeah, yeah. in much the curricula. So I wasn't an academic. And the funny thing about it is that I think, uh, explaining it now, having been a, an instructor and being a teacher to often an unwilling audience, it's, it was about how the, the curriculum was actually delivered. And many of the teachers, I, I you know, literally just rolled it out. They, they, they didn't actually engage the children, didn't enthuse the children. And I think this is where it's so important that you just don't ride roughshod over a child and mm. say they're lazy, they're not attentive. Yeah. I would put place the blame back at the teachers mm. to say, are they doing a good enough job? Mm. Because certainly when I've got corporate clients and I'm doing training for them, mm. you know, if they don't switch on and they don't enjoy it and they don't get enthused and engaged, then I don't get it asked back. I mean, it's a nightmare when I'm trying to write received. I always write that wrong. Yeah. Always write that wrong. Mm. And uh, and I'm always writing stuff wrong. Mm. Uh, thank God that's for okay. keyboards. That's okay, isn't it? We, everyone's WhatsApp in these days, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, correct, yeah. correct grammar and all sorts. You don't want to see some of my autocorrects. <laughs> They're not good. So just rolling back there, you said your mum was an alcoholic. Mm. Did that play a big part in you becoming who you are today, do you think? Yeah, absolutely, without mm. question. Uh, I used to get beaten by both. So even when they divorced, um, you know, and especially when I, my end of term happened and mm. I'd bring back this absolute abomination of mm. a school report, I would anticipate whichever parent I went to first would give me a hiding. Yeah. Then I'd go a couple of weeks later to the second parent. Yeah. They'd look at it, give me a hiding. Yeah. And, you know, and I was bullied at school. And, you know, I think a lot of people, I think if you dug under the surface with a lot of protectors and a lot of people who come into the industry of mm. security, I think they will have been people that will have been beaten up or had an abused childhood mm. in some shape or form and then have developed this inherent ability to want to protect others. Yeah. And and that you have to have. If you don't have that in this industry, you're in the wrong game. Yeah. You should be going elsewhere. But what I think it also does uh, develop, which I think is really, really useful, is this degree of um, intuition is the best way I can mm. describe it that you can read people's emotions mm. pretty quickly mm. and you can read a room pretty quickly because it was almost a survival skill when you were a child and certainly when you were with a, a volatile alcoholic mm. and they'd they'd smash you around the head with an ashtray or mm. or, or whatever you would you would read that that the the, the, the the mood change and the mood swing yeah. super quickly and start adapting accordingly. So yeah. I think intuition and conflict management <laughs> probably two skills that come from it. Absolutely, I I, I totally agree with you. I grew up, I grew up in a pub, mm. and straight away you know how people's mannerisms are. You know what's happening in that room. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 you can and it's that kind of instinctive thing. You mm. sort of refine it, and it's. Save my bacon. Yeah. Numerous times, sure. I have to say. And, sure. and I mean, I'm not just talking about my ex-wives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've weaned myself off the Good. taste of wedding <laughs> cake. Let's put it that way. So tell me your journey then from sort of 18 onwards. Well, I mean, to get me into the industry, we can we can sort of cycle back mm. a little further. Mm. So I started, you know, I, I'm now in my mid-50s. Mm. 
And You're in good nick, by the way. Thanks, buddy. Mm. That's really kind of you. Mm. Um, good surgeon. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not yet, but I won't discount it later. I was going to say, there's no creases in that forehead, oh, is there? Oh, there's plenty, mate. <laughs> there's plenty. It's just good lighting, thanks to your studio. Um, I started, uh, yeah, I started with judo, uh, which was very common in the 70s. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and there, there was none of this touchy-feely health and safety yeah. with it. I mean, literally, you'd have a grown man slamming seven-year-old yeah. children into the mat, yeah. being their ukis, you know. Mm. And, uh, and I started with judo, and I actually loved it, even though I got smashed about regularly, and my mum would turn up at the school gates and say, stop beating my son mm. up, <laughs> he's coming back in pieces, and only to beat me up later. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I started my martial arts journey, and really enjoyed it, and, uh, and just got myself engaged in it, and just continued moving through and changing to different martial arts and trying all sorts of things, which is pretty much where it got me to where I then decided, okay, I now want to get into the professional, you know, security industry. Mm. But prior to that, I did a number of different jobs. One of my first jobs was selling double glazing mm. door to door. Mm. Teaches you a lot. Horrific. Horrific, but teaches Horrific. you a lot. Yeah, I'd literally get picked up because when I got thrown out of home at the age of 17, uh, I lived in a, a sort of squat in southeast London, just outside Catford. Mm. And I went and did this job because it was one of the few jobs I had or could get. And I'd be picked up in a minibus in Hendon with a bunch of other guys, <laughs> dropped off into various different neighbourhoods in northeast London, yeah. which were generally pretty shit. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't want to be really bad in North London, but they were shit. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then there's me knocking on the door with my posh yeah. public Hello, school accent. Boy. Hello, <laughs> love to introduce you. I'd like to entice you to get some <laughs> double bathing. You know, and they'd be looking at me like, who the fuck, fuck is this it? guy? Get him out. And I was like, okay. Um, and that was it was hilarious, but I was making 50 quid a week. Yeah. And then, like, 30 quid of that was going on my rent mm. of sorts. 10 quid would go on my travel pass, and I had literally 10 quid to live on. Mm. I've never eaten so much fucking mm. bread in my life. Mm, <laughs> I mean, you just eat bread, bread, bread. Um, and then, you know, I, I then moved into another sales role. And I think doing sales jobs was fascinating. Mm. I learned an awful lot. I did mm. a lot of cold calling. Mm. Uh, work for dodgy publications mm. that would say, yeah, this is the International Business Journal. And it literally was utter nonsense. Yeah. And it was purely to generate advertising revenue. Yeah. And I met the most incredibly funny characters. Mm. Um, I mean, you could have written a sitcom about it mm. and not believed some of these personalities that were there. Yeah. And then really was still you know, practicing my martial arts. I then ended up sort of going overseas, doing a bit of traveling. Did a bit of bodyguarding when I was in, um, and this is bodyguarding. This is not close protection, yeah. as we would call it now. This yeah. was literally, you know, if someone's coming close to your principal, you'd batter them. Yeah. And I ended up, <laughs> and it really wasn't. Keep it simple. It wasn't any more sophisticated <laughs> yeah. than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it really yeah. wasn't. Get pull your principal yeah. out. And then it was sort of around a time that I was at a lunch, and I met over this lunch this um, this boyfriend of a female friend of mine who was an ex-para, and he turned around to me and he said, you know, I've been teaching self-defense mm. at a local sort of community center and you study martial arts and stuff. Would you come down and have a look? And he didn't really have any training. It was literally thump and run stuff. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I went down with him and we had a look at, you know, what he was teaching these girls. And it was pretty basic. And I said, well, look, OK, you could throw a few things in. You could do this, you could do this, you could do this. And he and then he and I then formed a partnership mm. and created my first company, which was called CSD or Corporate Self-Defense, mm. which was basically providing personal safety training to women uh, in corporations. Okay. And the idea was you have a lot of companies where 
you know, the biggest challenge would be getting women to come from work to go to a facility or a site yeah. to do training. And it's then hiring that facility. So the idea that we came up with was we'd actually train them in the boardrooms of their own offices. Mm. So they didn't have to go anywhere. Mm. They could literally just sort of come from their mm. desk, wander over. Good idea. And we teach them all in their normal clothes. Mm. And the reasoning for that was if you were ever going to use it, you're not going to be wearing a tracksuit yeah. on your sneakers. You're going to be wearing your heels. You're mm. going to be wearing a skirt. You're mm. going to be, you know, wearing the stuff which so was So you had them all dressed up in heels and skirts? Well, no, that was just me and Mark. The <laughs> 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 and, and, and that was generally any other games, <laughs> but it slipped. It slipped. Um, so yeah, and we, and we size twelves high heels. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, size twelve. How do you know myself? <laughs> so yeah, that was, uh, and it was, it was really. It, I mean, Mark and I, unfortunately, we fell out in the end. But yeah. uh, at the very beginning, it was so much fun. Yeah. We had such a laugh. Yeah, I bet. And and literally, had not a penny to throw into the business. We actually had so little money. We were cycling from meeting to meeting. Mm. Uh, and back in those days, cycling wasn't cool. Mm, <laughs> I mean, that yeah. was poor people. Yeah. And uh, we'd cycle <laughs> to all these meetings. And we managed to obtain some really big clients. Yeah. And there was one particular guy uh, who, was, uh, who turned out to be quite a legend, as it was, in the security industry, who was the head of security for this big conglomerate, who, he, who Mark and I walk in looking like a couple of cheeky chappies, mm going, this is what we can do. And he's going, right. And he somehow took some faith in us and said, okay, let's give it a go. And I said, look, I'll tell you what, we'll do it for free. Mm. If you like it, then let's book yeah. a whole bunch more. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't like it, you've won, you've lost nothing, mm. you know, and you won't lose any people in the process. So he said, uh, sure. So we went in and we did that. And then literally it was a question of building the client base by then going to all their competitor companies and going, well, we're doing it for X, Y, Z. So why don't you do it? Mm. And people, as we know, are somewhat sheeple. Mm. They will follow others. So it was a really, um, even for us, uh, a kind of a cunning way of mm. basically engaging. Very, so we just ended up then focusing on all the companies that had a very high female demographic, yeah. like advertising agencies, marketing companies, that sort of thing. So we'd get Saatchi and Saatchi and Brilliant. Bates Dorland and Ogilvy and Mather. And then we'd go into other ones and say, well, we're doing it for Saatchi yeah. and we're doing it for Ogilvy. Come on board. And they go, oh, yeah, fine. Yeah. And they get that yeah. warm, comfy feel. Yeah, fantastic. And how many years did that run for? That ran for about three years till about and 1994, I think. And why did you and your partner split? Uh, in respect of him, um, we fell out badly. And I don't want to be too harsh about it. He had a bit of a bit of a, um, a mental health issue okay. at the time, and uh, and he just had a bit of a meltdown. Okay. So we ended up. It was very acrimonious mm. the split. Um, and you know, I haven't heard from him since. Mm. So I'm sure he's fine, uh, or I'd like to hope he is. Uh, but yeah, we 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 fell out. I mean, mm. I've had many many fallouts yeah. over the years. Um, that's one of those ones which, to be honest. I, I think I heard you on one of your other podcasts, Dodge, saying everything happens for a reason. Absolutely, And I think that was the reason for yeah. me then to build the business and yeah. build my brand and, and, yeah. and develop from there. Mm. And that's when ICP, the company that I still have today, yeah. um, was formulated. And I had a tiny little office on Victoria Street in uh, in London. And uh, and then I had a couple of really dodgy people who mm. were who were working for me. Mm. Uh, but I but one of the key persons right at the very beginning that sort of built and developed and, and mentored me was a guy who was ex two to SAS, 
real legend. He's actually uh, he was actually a troop leader for Andy McNabb. Yeah. Is that what's his name? Uh, I'd be hesitant to say, but John. I'll say that much. Okay. So if there's any regiment guys okay. who are listening, they'll probably know. Okay. What's his uh, surname? <laughs> <laughs> nice try, Dodge. <laughs> nice try. Um, but John, John, John was a really good friend. Yeah. He was uh, an incredible martial artist as well. So he and I had that very much in common. We trained together. But we liked training in the park. I mean, he broke my ribs a few times. I mean, he was a big old unit. Yeah. But his story was fascinating because he'd actually, when he joined the SAS, he had actually been in the British Taekwondo team. Mm. And he kept it entirely to himself. And then he developed a thing called the Close Combat Club because the very early days of the, of the SAS, they didn't really have a very good hand-to-hand yeah. system in place. I mean, these days, you know, the likes of Staz and Ollie yes, and all right. those guys, it's all jujitsu based. Yeah. And there's a lot of that. And Jocko yeah. Winnick's a big exponent of that. Um, but back in those days, I believe it was Shotokan Karate, which was all they had. It was called what, sorry? Shotokan. Okay. Shotokan Karate. Mm. And a lot of the guys were trying it out and it wasn't working mm. when they actually put it into battle testing. Mm. Um, and John brought TKD, and he would tell the most hilarious stories about basically all of the guys would get together in the gym on a Friday or a Saturday night mm. and just rip into each other and just experiment and build stuff and develop it and everything else. Um, and so John and I would train together, and we'd have an awful lot of fun mm. um, smashing each other about. But mm. also he taught me an awful lot about the industry, mm. and uh, and I would, definitely would not have got to where I am today without I don't John. Think, without John. Yeah. It all happens for a reason, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Everyone's a contact. Absolutely, without question. I got Dodge. taught that as a kid from a very young age. Everyone you meet is a contact. Yeah, yeah. It's so true. So tell me your journey then with ICP moving forwards over the last 20-odd years. Yeah, it's 25-odd years. 25 years, years yeah. yeah. So started off, obviously, with the personal protection. Mm. And then I was emptying out um, Hereford and Poole mm. of bodies to help because we we started building a lot so of... So you were going to the SAS in Hereford and you're going to the SBS in Poole yeah, there was to a guy use called, those Yeah, so there, was, so there was a guy called Wally who used to be the resettlements guy yeah. for, for both Hereford and Poole yeah. and also for 14 Intelligence, you yeah. know, the precursor to special reconnaissance yes. these days. And Wally was a great contact and he would literally say, right, I've got Fred, Bill, Harry, yeah. they've just finished, they've just uh, done, would you like to come and, you know, would, yeah. would you like them to come and work? And, and I'd say, yeah, please, I've got, I need a couple of guys getting down for a couple of weeks yeah. or a couple of days or whatever it might be. Yeah. And I met loads and loads of lovely guys. Um, and then there's a bunch of other guys that you'd meet who were real sort of soul stealers, yeah. you know, <laughs> absolute yeah. death dealers. <laughs> and, uh, and they were quite terrifying yeah. when they'd come in the room. And then I had to have paras and I'd have Royal Marines and I'd have Royal Engineers and all sorts that would mix in. Um, and as it built, what would happen is the clients would turn around and say, well, look, you've trained your executives how to not get kidnapped or yeah. how to remain safe when they're overseas. They're going to Mexico. They're going to Pakistan. Yeah. They're going to Colombia. Could you send someone with them? So I had this kind of battalion Brilliant. almost of guys, Brilliant. which I'd say, great, off you go. Yeah. And many of these guys would have come from protective wing. Yeah. So they had the experience of looking after VIPs. But then there's this whole thing of toning it down, and it still prevails today, of toning down what someone would have done in their previous role, yeah. either protecting royalty or protecting MPs or, you know, um, you know uh, military commanders, that they have to scale it down from the hard skills to the soft skills. Okay. And the soft skills are 99% of the job. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The hard skills, you've got to have them, but, uh, but they only kick in really when it all goes horribly squirrely, which mm. it shouldn't. And is that like a 
everything's good. 1% all of a sudden you're, you might be doing 30 days on the job and all of a sudden you, that one hour it kicks off. Yeah, I mean, I'd say security is 99% boredom, 1% excitement. Um, okay. I mean, to it, it's more, I mean, going back to the days when yeah. I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, yeah. um, and it really was incredibly crude. It's a very, very intrinsically detailed um, service. Yeah. Um, people think it's just a big lump turning up. Yeah. There's so much planning that goes into it. Uh, every inch of their journey, every element of where they're staying, mm -hmm. um, who they're meeting with, mm -hmm. all sorts of things like that, uh, are all form part of that whole sort of protective coverage. And it's not just a guy there, you know, wielding a gun. Mm. The number of times where I've used a gun or carried a gun have been very few. And it's only been in hostile environments. Yeah. And I would generally say that unless you really do need to have weapons, try and ensure you have an operation that doesn't require it. And the simple okay. reason being, is that the moment you introduce guns to the equation, you're immediately upping the ante. Yeah. Unless you're in somewhere like Iraq or yeah. Afghanistan or somewhere where there's such a, a proliferation of weapons and such a you know availability of them. Do you own a firearm in the UK? I don't. No, you don't. Yeah, I used to, but mm. uh, but then it was after the Dunblane incident mm. that all the Section One firearms licenses, where we'd have pistols, and yeah. you know there was never automatics; they were always semi-automatic if you had anything. Um, and, yeah, when that happened, we all had to get rid of them in, here in the United Kingdom because the mm. whole idea was that would remove, obviously, organised mm. crime, getting their hands on weapons. Mm. That didn't quite work. No, it didn't, did it? No. Uh, well, give me give an example of some celebrities you work for. I generally don't mention celebrities, Dodge. Mm. Um, the, the reason being is, you. I mean, I, there was a Sunday Times um, or Saturday, Saturday Times magazine article that was about, uh, that was done on me. And the first thing that everybody asks is they say, you know, which celebrities you've worked for. Yeah, yeah. And I, unless there's a photograph of me with them, mm. I won't actually say mm. who I've looked after. Mm. And even if there is a picture of me with them, um, I'm not necessarily always going to confirm that I, <laughs> that mm. I was actually on task for them. Mm. The, the, you've got to be super discreet in this mm. game. I mean, it's, it's something which any of the sort of old and the bold like me cringe horrendously at us when we see photographs basically out there of, you know, bodyguards who are doing selfies or jumping in front yeah. of the camera on the red carpet and yeah. just trying to make themselves and then posting all sorts of stuff all over on their Instagram. Mm. You know, I say that because I do have a couple of celebrities yeah. on my Instagram. So I, Who so are I, they? I've got Paris Hilton, yeah. who was lovely. There we go. We got one out of there. There you go. You got one. Come on. But that was that we're warming a, him up. That people. wasn't a, that wasn't a protective <laughs> detail. Actually, that was something else entirely. And uh, and Paris was lovely. She was such a sweet girl. Where, where were you doing that in the UK? Yeah, it was in the UK. Okay. And she came bowling over. It was about three in the morning, and said, uh, "Will, can I get a photograph with you? Because oh, we just wow. finished working on a project together." And I said, "Yeah, sure." And uh, did one with her. And then I think the only other celebrity I've got on there is. Ava Herzegova, I will let up to that one. And yeah. that was during her glory days as the Wonderbra model. She was really sweet. And it really does go. I mean, you'll know this, Dodge. Yeah. Um, and I, it still prevails to this day. The celebrities that you expect to be nice are generally horrible. Really? And the ones you expect to be horrible mm. turn out to be oh, really yeah, nice. Yeah. We'll chat about that. Would before, you agree? I do agree. Yeah. I do agree. When you're look so close with someone, protecting them, 
Is there ever a moment you're getting so close that it, it could just go over the line? Are you, are you talking about of the opposite sex? Yes, the opposite <laughs> sex. Because you're working really close with them, right? Yeah. And if you know that they're single and they like you, you like them, is there any a point that you've been in a situation where you're thinking, oh my God, something could happen here? Yeah, to, to say it hasn't been something where you've gone, ooh, mm. uh, would be a lie. Um, you know, they're usually the short-sighted ones, mm. uh, obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, the moment you cross that line yeah. is the moment it's all over. Yeah. Your career's over. Yeah. You know, unless you're going to get married and have kids and retire from the industry, mm. it's really not worth yeah, it. Okay. And, um, you know, and sexual harassment does happen. Yeah. I know a number of bodies. I mean, I, I had it. I know how remarkable that might sound. Mm. Um, well, you've had think, sexual harassment against you. Yeah. Explain. The thing is, is you've got to remember that it's not necessarily any of this. Yeah. It's the capacity that you're fulfilling, mm. that you are a protector. Mm. And, um, you know, I can't speak for every woman, mm. um, but a lot of women are looking for a protector. And if they don't have a protector in their life, whether that be a father, a partner, you know, someone friendly, whoever is it is, it's very easy to see your close protection officer mm. as that protector, as that person who's going to protect them from the big old world. Mm. And one of the things I found with female celebrities is they always tend to end up with douchebag boyfriends. Mm. I mean, I had one particular case where um, she's, I won't say who it is, obviously, but she's very well known. She'd been with this douchebag boyfriend who basically she'd, she'd sent him some very intimate pictures of herself. He then turned around when they split up and said, I want 50 grand or I'm going to put them online. Yeah. So I had to go and have a word with him. And I managed to get the pictures back mm. and obviously it was all resolved. Mm. Um, but I turned around to her and I said, what were you doing with this guy? And I've had this conversation with a number of beautiful, stunning, talented, you know, female celebrities. And they say, you know, the problem, Will, is that because of who I am or my image or my persona, nice guys are too intimidated to come and talk to me yeah. because they will presume that I'm with someone. Yeah. Yet it's the douchebag, and every woman will know this, <laughs> having gone into a bar. We've all got hope, club. haven't we? We've all got hope. <laughs> There's all hope for us. But everyone will know this, that there is always you know, those characters in a bar, in a nightclub, who will just keep yeah. coming, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. You know, until Ask a hundred, one will say yes. Exactly. Mm. Uh, or ask that girl a hundred times, and she may say yes. Yeah. And, and they, you know, they get lonely, mm. like everybody else, mm. and they just end up going, well, pfft. None of the nice guys are asking me. This guy is. Yeah. He showed me some attention. Yeah. Mm. And it's uh, it, it's really kind of sad, actually, because mm. a, a lot of celebrities do feel incredibly isolated yeah, because sure. they've got to be careful what they say, where they go, what they do. Mm. You know, if they've got a bit of spinach in their teeth yeah. and all that malarkey. Not a life I'd want, mm. personally. Give me an example of what you actually do in close protection, bodyguarding for a celebrity, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. Well, that's a really good way of putting it because mm. we call it heads off pillow, head on pillow. Yeah. So that's where your job generally yeah. will start. Hopefully, you know, depending on the situation, you may have a team overnight that's watching over the celebrity and obviously making sure that they can sleep well. And obviously you as a CP officer, you know, uh, an executive protection officer, you can't stay up all night. You yeah. know, you've got to get your head down as well. So you hope you're not with one of these, um, you know, clients. And that could be a corporate client. It doesn't have to be a celebrity who will want to go out clubbing till five in the morning, mm. you know, and uh, yeah, nightmares. I've had a few of them. But yeah, what will happen is the moment you get up in the morning, you will already have a pre, hopefully you have a good relationship with their personal assistant or executive assistant. They'll be telling you what the schedule is for the day. Yeah. 
Uh, quite often when you've seen the client into their room, you know, the last thing of the day, uh, you'd say, okay, what time, boss, do you yeah. want us in the morning? They have your number so yeah, they can okay. call you. But you'd be up at a good hour at least before. And that could be first parade of the vehicles. So if they're, you know, whoever's going to be doing the driving that day, you'd get them well in advance. You'd want to make sure you're checking the car, checking the tire pressures, oil, water, yeah. cabin, everything else. I mean, um, for me, and I know for a lot of other guys, it's even down to what type of water they want. Mm. You know, if it's Fiji water or it's Evian, and yeah. you make sure it's there. I had one Pe- ver- Peckham Springs. Peckham Springs is my favourite. <laughs> Lovely one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I had one particular client who was a big smoker. Yeah. And I would carry literally about five packets of cigarettes <laughs> on me and about five different lighters yeah. because inevitably I'd give him a packet, he'd take one cigarette, light it, never see the packet of cigarette or Leave the lighter ever again. <laughs> so it's like resupply, resupply, resupply. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you go to all the detail. You make sure the hotel's good. You make, depending on, again, who the, the, um, the client is. I mean, I've had some former heads of state, some royal family members, uh, a foreign royal family, not mm. domestic, mm. Um, who you'll then be doing advances. You'll be looking at the route. You'll be looking at, you know, how you're going to be getting from A to B and C and D and making sure that there's no changes to what you've already done. If you've got a good enough team, you'll be sending people to run that route yeah. to make sure that there aren't any surprises or emergency roadworks mm. or horrible traffic that you didn't yeah. anticipate. So, yeah. you know, if a client's coming into a country and I'm already there on the ground, I'll be driving back and forth, back and forth, back and forth from the hotel or the office yeah. to the airport at various different times to just check and con- con- you know confirm that nothing has changed. Mm. Do all the pre-advanced check-in. So literally as the principal arrives, they literally come all the way through, depending on if they're going private or commercial. Yeah. And that they arrive, there's their card key, the room's already been checked, it's already at the temperature that they want. Yeah. You know, all so when you detail. say you check the room, are you looking for cameras in the room? Yeah, how, you look, do you, how do you find a camera in there, hidden cameras? What, what are you looking for? Well, there are, there are some tools you can use. I mean, for any kind of what they call TSEM or technical surveillance countermeasures, which is debugging, yeah. um, you will either have a lot of very expensive equipment, you know, things like an Oscar Blue, Oscar Green, um, a lot of the technology that's developed to, you know, some of the watchers, you know, listeners of this want to have a look at REI technology. They're probably at the very pinnacle in terms of some of this technology. They provide it to the CIA, to government agencies, embassies, that sort of Mm. thing. So I've got a team who have all that capability. It's about 200 grand's worth of kit. Is that right? Yeah, really expensive. But you can also get basic IR equipment as well. Which IR stands for? Infrared. Okay. So you can actually scan it around the room to actually see if there are any lenses. Now, okay. if they're tiny lenses, the light will bounce off right? the lens. So you will be able to see as the laser Where would it. someone normally put a hidden camera? In a clock or is it in a light? or what? Is there something that stands out for you? There's no one particular place. It really depends on the environment they're putting in, it into. So was it easy for them to get in and put it in? Yeah. Or is it difficult? Yeah. How long they need it to be in there yeah. will depend on whether it has its own independent power supply or whether it needs to be mains fed and yes. main power supply. Yeah. Um, and then when you're looking at it, you need to be thinking, okay, where would be the ideal place mm. for that camera to be to capture or that recording device to capture that information? Yeah. So you wouldn't put it in a bathroom. You know, you'd put it in maybe the bedroom. You mm. might put it into the, the the suite area where the client may be holding meetings. Yeah. So they may be getting people up. So, I mean, I've had enough clients who've been really concerned about, yeah. you know, the, the potential eavesdropping on conversations yeah. that will have, they'll have all their meetings on their jet. 
Mm, okay. So literally pull people up Amazing. onto their jet and that's Amazing. Because you don't uh, carry a firearm in the UK, mm-hmm. give, give me five things that you would like to carry on you. My everyday carries? Yeah. Okay, so I would say a tactical pen. It's really good. You can buy, if you Google search, you can find one of those. It's a steel pen. A, it's a pen, so you can use it. Uh, I did a thing for uh, uh, Unilat where I did this thing about close protection. And, you know, that was one of the bits of kit that I talked about. But it's also very solid. You know, if you strike someone into the sternum, that's going to keep mm. them at bay. Mm. Um, what else could you use it for? There are lots of courses out there on how mm. to use, you know, what they call a Kubatan, mm. um, which is illegal, mm. but it's a, a specific metal tool which you could potentially use as a weapon. But a tactical pen obviously is inert. It's a pen. Mm. So that's how you kind of circumvent Get away with that, that yeah. legal aspect. So if you got caught with that by the police, you could actually say, this is a pen. Yeah, you'd be fine. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you'd be absolutely fine. Okay. But it's very good. I mean, and people could say it's for breaking glass in their, their yeah. car window or whatever it to okay. affect an emergency escape. Yeah. There's all sorts of things. Um, a tactical torch, absolutely probably one of the most valuable pieces that I could suggest. Well, like um, a big, like a big sort of cost no, torch no, 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 or no, no. short one so not like the big old magnet yes. you know steel one but probably only about that long yeah. so it's easily concealable yeah. so you can literally carry it on you and it's not going to sort of bulk out yeah. um, you where need do you to have keep a- that down your <laughs> <laughs> oh you're just pleased to see me <laughs> pleased to see you <laughs> so no you- it's my tactical torch <laughs> So you would use that for, you're saying it's such an important tool for you. What would you use that for? So in the same way as the tactical pen, Mm. you could use it to strike. But you need to get it above 2,000 lumen in terms of its power. Okay. And the most effective thing is the the strobe light. Okay. So, uh, I mean, I I actually have one in my car. I could bring it down later and show you. Um, literally you flash this in someone's eyes, you will blind them. Is that right? And which is enough for you to get away. I've used it where we've come out of locations where there's lots of photographers and you blind all the irises. Ah. So, you know, you can ruin all their photographs. Ah, okay. Um, I remember in a certain sandy part of the world that I was yeah. in for a while uh, that when you had Alibaba coming up alongside to try and hijack you, you'd strobe the driver and their car would go... go on. Like See ya. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's inert, but it's incredibly powerful and it could buy you those few seconds okay. to escape a situation. So a tactical torch is definitely useful. Amazing. How much is something like that? Probably about 70 quid for a okay. decent one. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I'm not getting paid by them, but Claris do a good one. Yeah. Um, that's Claris with a K. Yeah. If you go on Amazon, you can find a good okay. one. But the most important thing is the lumen count. Make sure it's at least 2,000. Okay. If you get above 2,000, 2,500, 3,000. And you'll blind someone for a good three, four seconds. Yeah, easily. Wow. Yeah. You, you, I mean, literally, wow. I will show you okay, later. Yeah. And you'll be going... Yeah, and I can't see anything, yeah. and that's enough, you know, for a, for a, for a woman, even and for a man, you yeah. know, for a personal protection tool, brilliant, just buys you the, that window. Brilliant. Number three. Number three, I would say, would be a personal attack alarm. What 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 women carry with them, and what men should carry with them, and dodge. men should carry with them as well. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, the type I'm talking about is the type which is like um, with a, like a grenade. It yes. has a pin. So not the type that you will just literally press, press the, the button and it's really loud. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, you, or it's got an aerosol. And the reason being is, you know, you, you can't test it regularly to make sure it's actually working. Mm. So, I mean, I know someone who had one and it just went. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was so great. But if it's battery operated, then yeah. you can test it, replace the batteries. The joy is you pull the pin out yeah. and it's still going. You don't have to be holding it down. Right, okay. So if you've got a bandit yeah. who's trying to attack you, 
he'll just rip it out of your hand and throw it over a fence Still or going. a wall. And it's uh, but you know, as soon as your fingers come off, that's it. Okay. It's not going anymore. So you want one which you can pull the 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 pin out, stick it on your your belt loop or whatever like yeah. that. And you've got your hands free to protect yourself. Okay. Or you drop it at your feet and then they're confused as to do they deal with you, deal with that, deal Denoid. with you, deal okay. with that, whatever. Um, but why I like it is not only is it good in time. I mean, also the other technique I was talking about with someone the other day is that if you see someone who's in a situation, lob it in like a grenade. Yeah. So you will actually create disorientation and confusion for the attackers. Just the, just how loud so it is. So you're not going over yeah. and getting stuck in. Yeah. And God knows you could end up getting hurt yourself. Yeah. If you want to help, just pull the pin, throw it over yeah. at them. That could create that will draw the attention of other people to yeah. what's going on. Okay. And for the assailant, more than likely going to throw them completely and yeah. they don't know what to do. Yeah. Am I dealing with that? Dealing with them. Dealing yeah. with that, dealing with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I've used them probably more. When I've been traveling in various parts of the world, whether it be for work or whether it be for pleasure, mm. where if you're not sure about the integrity of the security of your room uh, in the hotel mm. or the lodgings, wherever you're staying, that you can actually fix one piece to one side of the door frame, mm. the strap onto the actual door itself mm. or the other side. Mm. And if someone pulls over, oh, pushes okay. open the door while you're fast asleep, it's an intruder oh, wow. alarm. Okay. Yeah. Next one. Oh, my God. Right. Put you under pressure, really. <laughs> you <are. laughs> I'm trying to think. What's the next one? What's, What's the, the next, next one? one? Um, so, yeah, sprays. So, what, like as in CS? CS gas? Well, yeah, you can't. Is that illegal? No, yeah, it is. Yeah. In, only in, in this country or worldwide? No, in this country. In this country, okay. So, CS gas, pepper gas, uh, any of those types of gases are illegal. They, mm. they fall under what we call the Section 5 firearm offence. Mm. Um, and if you get caught with one of those, you can do time. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, same with stun guns as well. Yeah. You get caught with one of those, you could be easily doing time. What, two, three years? Easily. Yeah. Wow, okay. Easily. Okay. Yeah. So I would, you know, and I've had a lot of friends, you know, female friends who've said, oh, my boyfriend, partner, whatever, brought me back um, some pepper gas from France. Because yeah. yeah. you can buy it across the counter in France. Yeah. And in a lot of other European countries. So you can buy it across the counter in France, but it's illegal in England. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. What did the EU ever do for no, us? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's illegal. And also the other problem is, is if you're laying too much responsibility on it, it's kind of like it's the holy grail. Yeah. Um, and you can't always rely that it's going to be there to save you. And if you use it, I've had it used on me in an offensive way. Yeah. So someone attacking me. And the problem is, is a lot of people start at a distance. Mm. And by which time, if they're running or charging towards me with it, then it actually blows back into their own face. Yeah. So uh, unless it's the liquid jet. Yes. But then you've got to be really accurate. But haven't you, can't you do the liquid jet from like three, four, five meters or something? You is can it? do. But yeah. again, it's it's how you do it. Right, so, okay. so you know, if you do it up and down or you do it side to side, yeah. there's a good chance you could miss them. Only okay. a little bit will hit them. And, and generally what I found with it is it has a little bit of a delayed effect. Mm. Not enormous amounts. But potentially enough for me to be able to react and respond to fight out, to yeah. punch, to whatever. Yeah. But where I would almost use as a, a legal alternative, and this will make you laugh, will be sort of like handbag uh, hairspray. Okay. Handbag size hairspray. Yeah. That lacquer is incredibly sort of, a, a, it's a coagulant. It sort of will actually gel together. But it's very important that you're going for the airwaves, you're going for the mouth, you're going for the eyes, you're going for the nose. Yeah. Don't bother with anywhere else because mm. what you want to do is basically confuse them. And again, it's literally only for a couple of seconds mm. to buy that time to get you out of that What's situation. What's that feeling like having pepper spray or CS gas? 
Not nice. No. Is it is, is it a is it a stun for how long? Because I've I've seen people been sprayed before and they're all over the place. How long does it last for? Oh, you're snot and tears for a yeah. good twenty minutes, half an yeah, hour, depending on how much yeah. they've delivered into your face. Yeah. And the key thing is just to get water. I mean, there was a mate of mine the other day. We've got a nasty spate in West London of um, of street robberies going mm. on right now. A lot of watch robberies. Mm. And a mate of mine had his was literally getting into his car. It was eight o'clock in the evening. And this guy's tried to grab his watch off him and then sprayed him in the face. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he called me up and said, Will, <laughs> what could I, I could just you? about <laughs> see, see your number here. And he, he was like, you know, um, what shall I do? I've lost my watch. And I said, just lots of water, mate, lots of saline. Yeah. Just just chuck it on there mm. and let it go. But don't touch your face, whatever you do. Don't touch your face, don't rub. It's only going to make it worse because you're pushing it into the pores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you allowed to carry firearms in other countries? Yeah, certain countries. What yeah. countries are you allowed to carry? So there would be countries like, for example, Latin America um, as a continent, Africa, certain parts of Africa. Nigeria, you can't as a Westerner, um, and you have to rely on locals. I, mean, I remember one horrendous time. I wasn't there, thankfully, at the time. A lot of security companies operating, I think it was in Lagos at the time, yeah. and there's a, a quite well-known curry restaurant. And a lot of these guys, you know, you're talking the, you know, real, you know, hard guys, yeah. sat around, everybody was in this place. And a gang come in with firearms and literally rob everybody and nobody could do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, it's horrific. Mm. But in other parts of Africa, yes, you can. Iraq, Afghanistan, yes. Certain parts of Pakistan, you can. Uh, Southeast Asia, certain parts, Latin America. Those are generally the, 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 the places. Do you, when, you, when you're there, do you get your firearm when you're in the country? Yes. Yeah. So you, you arrive and you uh, either have your fixer sorted out for you and uh, and then you're obviously provided with it and you go from there. I mean, there's I mean, like when I we first went into Iraq, for example, uh, as a private military company and looking after a number of sort of major corporates that were trying to rebuild in the country. Um, I tried to organize with Colt over in the States, uh, getting M4s and speaking with Heckler and Koch to get MP5s. Mm. And literally was an absolute nightmare. And the easiest option for us was to go into the gun markets and just buy a, a shed ton of uh, AKs, Makarovs, Tauruses, you know, very, very simple. Mm. Although it got a little out of hand, mm. got a little out of hand. So I went down on one occasion to meet with my team and we had a hotel floor in the uh, middle of Basra, which was set up as our sort of op center. So it had, you know, the billets, the, you know, the sleeping quarters, mm. had a rec room, had uh, the armory. Mm. And I said to the guy, the DL, when I got down there, I said, uh, so when I turned up, they said, um, they said, boss, you know, get your head down, you know, have a sleep. And I went, no, 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 armory first. Mm. And they went, no, 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 boss, honestly. You know? <laughs> I went, no, armory first. Yeah. And we go to the armory. And literally there should only be a few AKs, maybe 20 or so. Yeah. Get in there, it's about 50. It's about five RPGs. I'm like, what the fuck are you guys doing? You're preparing for a war here. And they went, well, they were on special, sir. Yeah, <laughs> quality. Well, tell me about Pakistan. Mm. Tell me about Nigeria, because I've heard all sorts about Nigeria as well. You've mentioned some countries here are really places that are very different to the world we live in. Mm. Do you feel protected when you're there, even though you're protecting people? Do you feel that you're more vulnerable in these situations than you would be in the UK? Um, depending on how I'm capacitated. So... If I'm going down on my own, mm. then yes, you can feel a little bit exposed yeah. and hanging out. Yeah. Um, I would rarely do that. Mm. I'd, I'd at least go with one other. 
if you're with a big old team, you make sure that you've got good local resource. Mm. So you're getting that intel. So like in, in Iraq, you know, that hearts and minds piece, so essential because you get the local intelligence. Yeah. Whatever we can do from our desktops here in the UK is only going to give us a limited picture. Mm. You need to actually f- speak to the people on the ground. Mm. So the most important thing, like in Basra, was the locals to keep them on side was essential because if there was a planned attack, then they would, you know, they would give you the heads up mm. because they know about it. I mean, a good example of that was when I was in Afghanistan. I went out to one of the forward operating bases called Goreshk, uh, which is in the Helmand. And I was down there in that capacity for the government, just doing some sort of basically welfare, health and safety. Sounds yeah. very boring, but it was quite good yeah. fun. And one of the things I looked at was the LRWs, and these are locally recruited workers, so yeah. local Afghanis who are working on camp, yeah. providing all sorts of things, cooking, ablutions, mm. that sort mm. of thing. And I wanted to go and have a look at their facilities, and their facilities were mm. lacking, to put it mildly. Mm. And I basically put in my report and said, right, they need to have proper showers, proper ablutions block, mm. proper fire pit for them to cook their pitta mm. and everything else. And they were really grateful because I was the first person actually down there to say, these guys, you know, let's give a shit about these guys because we, you know, we got to look after them. And and then literally it was about a week later, one of them came over to me and he said, uh, he said, boss, just thought I'd give you the heads up. You know, we know that there's a local gang who's going to try and attack the camp tonight. And I went, thanks, buddy. Appreciate Mm. it. So I then go over to the CEO, the commanding officer Mm. on the camp. And said, just had word from one of the LRWs yeah. that there's going to be a planned attack on the on the camp tonight. Mm. He said, thanks very much, Will. Mm. And I said, great. Nothing happened, sadly. Because yeah, yeah. I did say, can I grab a weapon out of the armory? If, yeah, if it one does of the happen? 50. And he said, dig out, Will. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is an Afghan. Oh, so yeah. Would have been out of the, okay. the, out of the British Army yeah, armory. So the quartermaster. Um, but he turned around to me and said, uh, he said, yeah, sure. Of course, again, if we get under attack. So give me an example. Whoever it may be in the UK comes to you mm-hmm. and says, I want to work with you. How do you charge them? A lot. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. But how do you charge? You charge is it a day rate? Is it a, a it job depends. rate? Is it a it could be it could be any one of those. So it could be an hourly rate. Um so depending on what the task is. So if it's consulting, if it's wandering around their home, their office to advise on what better security they should have there, then that might be, you know, very cheap, very quick, very dirty and mm. easy. Uh, if it's a big corporate headquarters, if it's reviewing their own security. I mean, I've done a few audits on close protection teams that are already in place. Okay. That doesn't make me an incredibly popular man, yeah, as sure. you can imagine. Uh, I think one of my worst occasions was walking into a room of 20 bodyguards and telling them they were all sacked. Mm. I moved pretty damn quick <laughs> yeah, out that sure. door, let me sure. tell you, straight after. Who gave you the, who gave you the command to do that? The client. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, had a, I got into big trouble in Saudi Arabia. I can tell you this story. Yeah. Um, where I was doing a review, this was in the, the wake of the Alhambra attack in 2003. And mm. if you recall, they actually made a movie of it called Kingdom with Jamie Foxx. And uh, it was a, a compound, residential compound, um, which came under attack by Al-Qaeda. They turned up at the front gate. They killed the, the, the guards, came in, shot loads of people as they drove through, drove down to where um, there was a barbecue and a pool area and then detonated two VBIEDs, vehicle-borne improvised mm. explosive devices, and it killed about 35 people, mm. and it was horrific. And in the wake of that, my client at the time said, I need you to go down and have a look at all these residential compounds and just see whether the security is good enough. And I actually went to the Alhambra compound and actually saw the bomb site. It was horrific. 
And, you know, the poor guy, the, the general manager who ran the compound was still in shock. And mm. it was like, he should have been shipped out, get someone else in mm. here straight away because this guy's going to be just mm. PTSD to the max. Mm. Anyway, I went round and there was one particular compound which was very, very, very well known, very expensive, probably the most expensive compound uh, in the kingdom. And uh, the owner was very prominent. That's as much as I'll say but a very well-known name. Mm. And he'd had some shitty US consultant. And I say shitty because he really hadn't done his job. Mm. And there was holes everywhere, mm. exposures everywhere. And I came in and I wrote this report up for the client and just basically said, this place is like a mm. fucking teabag. It's mm. got so many holes in mm. it. I can't give it my blessing mm. to say it's safe enough. And there's nothing we can do um, about it. The client, although the, the document was supposed to be for their eyes only, decides then in their infinite wisdom and fury to then send it over to the property management company that actually ran mm. that compound. Next thing I get is a letter from the personal office of this very prominent person who says, you are no longer welcome in the kingdom. And I'm like, <laughs> fuck, if I go back, I'm gonna get thrown into prison. <laughs> So I literally, I think, no bullshit to this. Yeah. So I send a letter back with a copy of the report and an explanatory sort of addendum mm. to say, no, you should be sacking your security advisor mm. because he hasn't done a good enough job. Mm. And he is putting your people, your guests at risk. Mm. And this, you will be, you're wide open. I had a similar one I'll come to in a mm. moment um, where I've given my advice. I'm not always right, Dodge. Mm. Um, and literally a while later, I still got this letter framed on my wall in, in the office. Uh, I get a letter back that says, thank you very much, Mr. Geddes. We've now reviewed this situation. We would welcome you back into the kingdom. I'm like, Brilliant. fuck that, I'm still okay. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I remember I had another one. There was uh, this, the, the Telegraph, I think it was, the arts critic said to me, Will, we'd love to have a look at um, the security of all the major museums in London. Mm. So this is the British Museum the V&A, the Wallace Collection, and the National Gallery, I mm. think it was. And uh, and I said, yeah, fine. It was just an impromptu, sort of clandestine sort of job. So mm. I literally went in there, looked around, made my own thoughts, yeah. came back. And I came back with one which was on the V&A, and I said, yeah, they're wide open. Mm. And they turned around to me, and, uh, and so the journalist, lovely woman, said, thank you very much, Will. She obviously passed those comments over to all the museums, and with an open invitation, which I said, look, at no charge, I'll happily come in and discuss my findings. Yeah. Hopefully that'll be helpful. Yeah. And most of them were all really well, very mm. receptive to it. Mm. The V&A turned around and said, fuck off. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. okay. And, and uh, the journalist goes to print. Two months later, they had a big robbery. Did they? Go figure, eh? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's because I, I, you know, I'm not there to try and humiliate or upset or no, embarrass you're anybody. No, you're doing what you're... Doing my job. Absolutely. And happy to share the thoughts, absolutely. you know, and I'm not going to charge. Have you had any trouble or been involved in any uh, gangsters in the UK? Yes. You have? I have. It's a very difficult subject. Mm. It's a very difficult subject. Protecting someone against gangsters is a tough job. Yeah. Because you... It goes back to the question you asked earlier, Dodge. Um, if you are in an environment where you can fight on an even playing field, mm. they've got guns, you've got guns, mm. we all know what's going to potentially mm. happen. If you're in an environment where you're not armed mm. and the other side is, mm. then you're in 
in a really uneven fight. Mm. Uh, and I would say, number one, I wouldn't want to put myself in that position. Yeah. But number two, I wouldn't want to put my team in that position. Yeah. And I've had a couple of moments where I've just had to go, you know what? You've got to know your limitations. Yeah. And I'll readily put my hand up and say, I know my limitations on that one. Mm. So I think a lot of the old school gangsters, you know, they fight it out amongst themselves. They don't pick fights with the civvies. Mm. I mean, you've interviewed enough of these mm. guys. Absolutely. You know, there is a kind of code yeah. to a certain extent. There's a London code. There's a Manchester code. There's a British code in that gangster yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if I got engaged to look after someone who is at mm. risk to, you know, a gangster retaliation, mm. If it's a high-level gangster, no, I wouldn't touch mm. him with a barge pole. Mm. Although, having said that, I did have uh, I did have one case. This was years ago. This is like <laughs> in the mid-90s mm. for one of the big record labels. Mm. Uh, again, I can't say who. And they'd uh, – you, you probably know more about the music industry than mm. I do. But the way they run it, they have an A&R department mm. who will sign various acts. And then they, you know, they're on the label and they'll produce them and create their albums and that sort of thing. Anyway, they had this one particular uh, the A&R who'd come in, and this A&R was the new guy. And he literally went through all the signings book and went, okay, keep them, lose them, keep them, lose mm. them. And one of the bands that he decided to lose was this, like, gangster rap gang <laughs> sort of band up in Manchester. Mm. So anyway, these kids had obviously gone, yeah, we've had the big time. Yeah. We're one of the big major labels, da 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 and then all of a sudden they get the call going, you're dumped. <laughs> and they're like, fuck. <laughs> so the next thing they're, they're doing is they're turning around and going, fuck you, we're coming down. Mm. We're going to shoot up your reception, kill your A&R <laughs> guy and burn the building down. <laughs> so I get this frantic phone call yeah. from the from my client who says, uh, well, we just had this threat. What can we do? <laughs> so I went, fine, no problems at all. And this was back in the days with Wally as the, yeah. the, as the, as the guy and John was around yeah. as well. And... Uh, and I remember bumping into my client, a lovely woman who's since retired, and she turns around to and she says, uh, she says, Will, to this day, I can still remember the minibus turning up with all these guys with tashes like this, <laughs> all wearing Timberlands, all wearing North Face fleeces, <laughs> all wearing jeans, and on the side of the minibus, it said Hereford Taxis. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Quality. So literally, these guys were supposed to blister into the background yeah. with all these really cool music people, and you just got a couple of lumps. Lumps, yeah. Like that. <laughs> Tell me, your, you've come like a, uh, uh, I guess, a celebrity on TV. Have I? I you have. Know. You have. And you're always on talking about terrorism and everything yeah. going on in the world. Tell me that little journey you've been on because it's been, it's been quite exciting, I'd have thought. The TV stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it kind of, I, did, I was trying to remember this the other day. It was one particular interview where I got a call, and I don't know how it came through from the BBC, mm. to talk about the – What's her name? Posh Vice. <laughs> Posh Vice. <laughs> that's, that's all I need to know. Posh. <laughs> there was a kidnap threat <clears throat> against yep. Posh mm. um, that the Sun or the News of the World had uncovered. And I got a call. Oh, mate, I've still got some of those recordings I've kept. <laughs> They're absolutely freaking horrendous. I mean, literally, if I ever need to, if I ever want to bring myself a few rungs down, I'll watch one of these and just go. <laughs> And uh, and I went on to the BBC, and for some mad reason, I obviously said something that they thought was interesting enough to invite me back. Yeah. And then inevitably, you jump about from station to station. And I was like, yeah, fine. And I got a lot of jib when mm. I first started doing it from guys, from, from guys in the industry. Really? Yeah, so, so from my peers. And they were like, 
you know, oh, I fucking get his up yeah. there again, talking about this, that, yeah. and the other, and he's talking bollocks, and, yeah. and it probably was, but, yeah. you know, the the general public obviously yeah. seemed to enjoy it and yeah. seemed to make some sense from it. But it was, a, you know, as a marketing tool, fantastic. Absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't knock it. For your it. profile, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the th I'd love to say, Dodge, mm. that my clients, and there are, you know, I have a good number of them, will, when they have a drama, will go, got a cool will. Will, yeah. But I'm realistic and modest, I hope, enough to realize that they will think of the first name that comes to their yes. mind. Because usually it's a very intrinsically reactive situation. Yeah. It's something's happened. Wheels have flown off. Yeah. Something's blown up. And they'll go, who do I call? Mm. And I'd love to think I was their, their number one choice, but I know that I'm not. But if my little ugly mug has showed up on Sky News yeah. that morning it's gonna trigger or on them, GMB yeah. or whatever yeah. it might be, they're going to go, oh, cool, Will. Mm. And and I realized how important that was as a tool yeah. to basically, does it generate business? Um, not in a new introductory sense, mm. but it does in terms of just reaffirming, yeah, reaffirming and just reminding yeah. them. Because a lot of the business is, I mean, I'm, it's a very people business. And it's about going to meet with people and sitting down and having a cup of yeah. coffee, talking shit, yeah. and just going, how's your world? What's happening? Yeah. This is what we've been up to. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're creating ideas in their minds for solutions. Because yes. people will go, ah, Will's only good for that. Or yeah. Will's or ICP is only good for that. Yeah. If you can expand their horizons, they can go, right, okay, they're, they're, we hadn't mm. considered that. They mm. can, We can come to them for that. But it's a very personal business, mm. and it's about having a good engagement and a, and a, just a good natural mm. you know, interaction, Report, like absolutely. you and me, Dodge. Absolutely. It's lovely, isn't it? I mean, it? I remember there was one occasion <laughs> where I sat down with this guy, and it rarely happens. I hope to think I get mm. on with most people. And I sat down with this guy. And I knew that I could deliver what he needed, and he knew I could deliver what I needed, but we just didn't like each other. Mm. There was just something, you know, go back to that intuition, mm. could just tell we weren't like each other. And I turned around at the end of the meeting, I said, look, you know, you're a super nice guy, don't want to waste any more of your time, but we'll, we'll, we'll call it quits there, shall we? Yeah. And he said, what, don't you want to provide the business? I said, look, I can detect that you don't particularly like mm. me and, and, and vice versa, mm. and you're a nice guy, I don't disrespect you for yeah. that. But I know that this will just end up clashing tears, later down yeah. the line. So yeah. it's far better. Yeah. We just, you know, there are plenty of guys out there, and I'll push you to some super mm. guys who'll be able to help you out, or good companies that mm. I know can help you out. But you and I doing this, mm. it's only going to go wrong. Mm. What's that feeling like for you, being known as the real James Bond? Oh God, Dodge. <laughs> <sighs> it's it's in. Well, I'm beginning to accept it a little more these days. <laughs> Um, and, and I mean, I laugh it off, obviously. Yeah. Um, it makes me chuckle. Um, I mean, I get the piss taken out of me, something wrong, <laughs> as you can probably imagine. Um, I, I, I don't get it myself, yeah. but, you know, um, if people want to use that yeah. tag, you know, it's, it's a bit like when I first get, because I'm a civvy, yeah. you know, I'm not XSBS, I'm yeah. not SAS, yeah. I'm not this, that, or the other. I don't come from the conventional backgrounds that most yeah. guys come from. So it's so people like to put people in boxes. Yeah. And, it's quite uh, a nice box to be in, to be fair. It's a great it? box. I'm not going to knock it. Yeah, I think I'm probably more Roger Moore than <laughs> Daniel Craig, though, to be fair. Uh, and probably more that age as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a nice Nick, tag. Maybe knick-knack? No, yeah, probably more knick-knack <laughs> or Jaws, yeah. <laughs> just, uh, just before we finish off, I'm really interested in what happened, what's happening in the world or what's happening in London with terrorism? Is that slowed down? 
You know the things we're having on London Bridge and everything else that was been going on. Yeah, has that slowed down over the last couple of years? Well, 20, that that particular year is twenty seventeen, I think. Yeah, um, which was when everything happened. That's Manchester, right. um, uh, PC Palmer, uh, Borough Market, everything, all yeah. that crap went down. Uh, it hasn't slowed down. No. Still going on. Mm. I've got good friends who are in CT, mm. and uh, they and they've uh, they've said, look, you know, it's still going on. We're still running intercepts. We're still doing surveillance. Still busy as hell. The fact of the matter is that you know they're they're very successful at, at taking these guys down, but it's inevitable. We're going to see another attack, mm. um, whether it's international terrorism or whether it's um, far right extremism. We're going to see something. It's never going to go away forever. Mm. But people forget about it because obviously a lot of the focus and polarization is on you know the Ukraine Other or stuff, Will yeah. Smith smacking Chris yeah. Rock. Yeah, when something triggers like that on London Bridge, the CT. Mm -hmm. Counterterrorism unit. Does everyone get a call straight away? Does yeah. everyone get a buzzer straight away saying, "This yeah. is what's happening"? Get there straight away. Yeah, yeah. Are there hundreds in the UK? In sorry, hundreds of them in London waiting for something to happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got you've got the the the, the, the firearms teams, yeah. the SO19 boys, um, and you've got the SFO guys who are all ready, prepped, good to go. Okay. And in London, obviously, you can get more guys in very quickly than you can out in you know in the sticks somewhere. Yeah. So in the major cities, there are counterterrorism branches right across the country, yeah. and they are ready to 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 roll. Yeah. One of the biggest wake-up calls was with the London terrorist attack in um, 2005 is that a lot of the comms fell down yeah. between British Transport Police, Metropolitan Police, Counterterrorism Command, mm. and all of that fell down. And then the next thing happening is is basically, you know, everyone's running around like headless yeah. chickens to a certain extent. And and the police and friends of mine who were heads of various different departments yeah. said, Will, that is what happened. Yeah. Um, and it was, a, and it caught everybody out. I mean, I I pied myself something royally on TV on mm. Seven Seven, mm. you know, with CNN. Uh, and actually, I bumped into Christian Amanpour the other day, who interviewed me, mm. and I, I I made the biggest fatal mistake ever of saying I don't think it's that when it was. Right, Although okay. I was reassured later by him, yeah. my five friends of mine, who turned around and said, actually, we were thinking the same as you, Will. Yeah. But everybody got completely thrown by that, regardless of the fact that there were many decades of experience in dealing with terrorism with the provisional IRA. But since then, the communication systems, the triage, the reactions, the responses, everything else, um, and the protocols have just been so refined and yeah. so tested and so drilled yeah. that they are pretty damn quick. A good example of that was the character on Streatham High Road yes. in 2019, I think yeah. it was. And uh, and literally how quickly the yeah. team were on him. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Really is. Will, I have really, really enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> me too. Yeah, George. it's been fun. Sorry, I've just rattled off. No, mate, it's been real good those fun. Those who know me know that it's difficult to shut me <laughs> up sometimes. <laughs> mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's lovely to hear your story. It's lovely to hear your journey, where you're going now. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I really appreciate you coming down here to the studio. I really appreciate being honoured and and uh, invited onto the show, Dodge. Thank you. You're a good man. Appreciate it, sir. Cheers, Will. Thank Take you. Take care, mate.